welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Well, good morning again. It is the last week of our Thirsty for God series. We're going to finish the story up, right? I know everybody's sad about that. I'm not sad. I'm ready to move on to our next series. But it's our last week of this story where we've been studying David and Absalom. And if you'll remember, last week the story came to a head. Here we have the battle. We thought it was going to be a huge battle. It was going to take forever, but it was two verses. God said uh, David won. So here at the end of this story, we have David and the forces that are with him win the battle. David's rebellious son Absalom is dead, and there is no more battle for who is in charge, who is king, or who is in control. And David takes his place on the throne once again. Uh, let's take a moment to just talk about what a throne is. A throne is a, is a place where the king sits. Everybody knows that the king sits on the throne, and, and it's a big, huge, ornamental, decorated chair. It usually sits up above everybody else for the purpose of showing them that this person, the person who sits in this chair, is higher than everybody else. They deserve the authority. I've, I've got a picture coming up here. This is a throne in China. This is, this is called the dragon throne, and you can kind of see what, what a real throne should look like. It's beautiful. Gold inlays the chair sits up higher than everybody and it just gives you this this thought of wow the person who sits here must they must have power they must have absolute authority this particular throne is several hundred years old. It dates back to the Qing Dynasty, which ended well over a hundred years ago in China. And, and this throne is special, and I love the placement of this, and it kind of tells us the, the way that a throne symbolizes power. In China, the culture said at the time that this was built that the Forbidden City, the place where the emperor lived, was the center of the world. Now, I don't know what kind of maps they were using, but that, that's what they said. This is the center of the world, this palace where the, the king lives. And would you like to guess what is in the dead center of the forbidden city it's this throne and that speaks to the power of a throne when when you have people say this the center of the world is this place where the king says the center of the world is this place where the king gives orders from it talks about the importance of the authority of a particular throne and so when we say that David comes back into power we're saying that he's coming back into this absolute authority and this unquestionable power that he has. Uh, proof of the power of a throne is this. If you, if you think about it, think about the way that we say the White House. If we say these orders or these directions came from the White House, all of us understands that the, the word White House is synonymous with the president. At the same time, back in these times, if you said the throne has commanded this, you're talking about the power of the king or of the emperor. And so as we dive in today, we're going to be focusing on David's throne and, and the purpose of David's throne. The story of the dragon throne that I just showed you, that, that's only one story. There, there's hundreds and thousands more stories of thrones just like that, that that have that connotation of absolute authority with them. And wars have been fought over who gets to sit in this place of absolute authority. Millions of people have died over who gets to have the final say, who gets to sit in the seat of power. We've been studying one of those stories with David and Absalom. David is the king, he has the throne, he sits in a place of absolute power, and Absalom looks at himself in the mirror and says, I should be king. 
And he builds up support for himself across Israel. And he begins to wage a civil war on his own father for control of the throne, the seat of absolute power. And so the story that we followed over the past couple weeks, just to recap it, David is on the run with his followers. They're running through the desert. They don't have water. They don't have food. They're dealing with all of these things. David is crying out to God. And it, it culminates in that battle we learned about last week. That, that final last moment of battle when, when Absalom dies and David is restored to that place of absolute power. And it's like a celebration moment for us, right? Like we're on David's side. He should have won this. But, but what we find is that David, David is not happy. Upon finding out that Absalom dies, he, he can't even celebrate. He can't congratulate anybody. He just, he cries and he weeps and he cries out for Absalom and said, if only, if only I had have died instead of you. David wins the battle, but he loses something more. And that's what we're going to pick up this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 19. Listen, listen to the story here. And it was told Joab, Joab is David's top commander, a close friend of his, and it was told Joab, behold, the king weepeth and mourneth for Absalom. And the victory that day was turned into mourning among, until all the people, for the people heard say the day, how the king was grieved for his son. And the people gat them by stealth that day into the city, as people being ashamed steal away when they flee in the battle. But the king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And Joab came into the house of the king and said, Thou hast shamed this day the faces of all thy servants, which this day have saved thy life, and the lives of thy sons and of thy daughters, and the lives of thy wives, and the lives of thy concubines. In that thou lovest thine enemies and hatest thy friends, for thou hast declared this day that thou art regardest neither princes nor servants for this day. I perceive that if Absalom had lived, and we all had died this day, then it had pleased thee well. So as David's crying out in this, in this crippling and hurting anxiety, and we're dealing with a big topic here, we, we tend to look back on this and say, David's a good guy and Absalom's a bad guy. But David lost a child. And he's dealing with the grief of a father who loses a child. This, this crippling anxiety that he's dealing with because of this. And we can understand that. But I think the Bible calls us this morning to look deeper, to look past the grief and to look at the effect of grief on David and to look at the problems that he's having because of his grief. You see, this grief is causing him to ignore his blessings. Now listen, I want to be clear. We're going to talk about this this morning. I'm not saying that we shouldn't grieve. God made us to grieve. God made us to mourn. But we see in the story of David, and I think it's a story that affects lots of us, is that David's grief overtakes his life. And because of that, he begins neglecting the blessings that God had given him. And his close friend, and this speaks in the Bible of the need for Christians and followers of God to have friends who can speak into our lives, who can call us out when we need to be called out, who can talk straight to us in the hardest moments. David's friend Joab comes to him. He comes to his king and he sits down with him and he, and he starts to tell David, here's the effect that this is having on your men. Remember, these men just came out of a battle. These men went into a place where they said, I don't know if I will come out alive. They took the lives of other men. They, they watched friends of theirs die. 
They serve the king. And at the end of this battle, there's this sense of relief and a sense of celebration and a sense of accomplishment. Look what I did for my king. Look, look what I did. And there's a celebration among all of David's warriors. But, but David's, David's not there. David's too busy grieving. David's too busy having a hard time with the problems that he's going through. He's not there to celebrate with them or to encourage them. He's not there to congratulate them. Instead, he ignores them and he focuses only on the loss. And in this is a sin that David commits. Not, not that he grieves, not that he hurts, not that he's upset, but here's the sin that David commits is God had a plan for the future, and David was so focused on what he lost that he ignored God's plan. And, and he ignored the people that t- played a part in his plan. And so Job comes to David and he, and he has this blunt conversation with him. He says, David, if you do not, if you do not shape up, if you don't go encourage your troops, if you don't go celebrate their great victory, if you can't look past your grief for a few moments to look at the needs of the people that you have, by the end of the day, they're all gonna go. These people who fought for you, who want to come celebrate for you, they feel ashamed because you're crying. They feel like they failed you. You're fixing to lose your army. And this is what Joab says to David, is you've lost a lot, but allow me to be blunt. There is more for you to lose. And so Joab challenges him to get his focus back. David, focus on what God gave you. Don't don't focus on what you lost. Focus on what God gave you. Don't focus on what you lost. Our first take-home truth is this, is love the life God gives you, not the one you wish you had. This is Joab's calling to David. And I want to be clear, I'm not talking about, hey, we should never grieve or we should never be sad or, or things won't hit us hard. As Christians, our life is not rainbows and sunshine all of the time. I understand that. This is a matter of balancing that with accepting the blessings that you give. And Job tells David, he says, look, here's what we think of you. We believe, we believe this, that you would have rather all of us died, those of us who love you, so that your rebellious son could have lived. This, this is what you're giving off. You're, you're focusing on the life you wish you had instead of looking at the blessings that you have in front of you. And this is a fair assessment. You love more what you lost than what God gave you. And because of that, because of that, David, you are close to losing it all. You're close to losing what you have left, and you're close to losing the blessings that God has given you. Once again, there's nothing wrong with grieving, but this story tells us of a need to balance that. And I know that as we talk about this, several of us have been in a hard situation. We've been in a place of, of extreme grief. We've been in a place of hurt. And I, I don't pretend to stand up here and know your consequences, or, or to know your circumstances, rather. To know what you've lived through, I don't know. But I can promise you this, and I believe the Bible promises you this, is no matter what you've dealt with, there is life ahead of you. And there are blessings that every one of us has received. The God of the universe, who puts every hair on every animal, loves you. The God of the universe who knows how many pieces of sand there are on any given beach in the world, he knows your name. The God who created every human, who keeps the sun and the stars in the sky, that God stops what he's doing to hear your prayers and your moments of anxiety. And while there are things that we have lost, there are things that we are also blessed with. And for this reason, because that God loves us, there is always hope going forward. But for many of us, we miss that 
because we grieve too heavily, because we focus too much on what we wish we had, the life that we thought we deserved. But, but understand this about God, is, is God doesn't call us to ignore that. God understands all of those things. God understands your hurt. As a matter of fact, God knew your circumstances before you were born. And he loves you, and he's there for you, and he has plans for you past that moment or past that problem. And we have a choice how we accept that. And we see how David accepted that. David hears from a close friend, this person who, David, even as a king, he let this person who was technically beneath him come and speak into his life and say, David, you need to get this straight. David, don't lose everything because you've lost a lot already. And, and David accepts that and he makes this decision. He makes this decision to not neglect the blessings that God had given him. Let me be clear about David. His hurt didn't go away. He didn't just go, oh, well, you're right, Absalom, glad he's dead. It didn't change how David felt. But David quit neglecting the blessings that God had gave him. David decided, David decided, I will value the life that I have, even though I missed the one that I didn't have. Listen to verse eight here. After this, this talk with Joab, it says, then the king arose and he sat in the gate. And they told unto all the people, saying, Behold, the king doth sit in the gate. And all the people came before the king, for Israel had fled every man to his tent. And so David, upon hearing this from Joab, having this spoke into his life, we see David accepts his role. David, as king over Israel, as the undisputed king, he goes and sits in the gate. Some translations say he went or he took his seat. What kind of a place does a king sit? sits on a throne. And so this Bible talks of David in the midst of his grief, in the midst of the problems that he had, taking time and making the decision, I accept the God, the life that God has given me. And this is the first time he sits on a throne as the undisputed king of Israel since Absalom started to rise up. It's the first time we can truly say that he is the functional king. Now, we've got to be clear. The Bible calls David the king the whole time. David, David is again and again and again referred to as the king. The king did this. The king said this. He's referred to the, as the king in the Bible, and so he holds the title of king. Officially, he's the king. He has every right to call himself king during this moment because God had chosen him, and he had not chosen Absalom. David had the title, but David was a king with no palace. David was a king with no country. His, king had or his country had rejected him. And David was a king with no throne, a king with no absolute authority up until this moment. And so technically David was the king, but not functionally. Functionally he wasn't. Just to get real Arkansas on us for a second, you guys heard that old saying, well, if you have to tell somebody you're the, you're the, if you have to tell somebody you're the boss, what is it? You ain't the boss. And that's where David is at this moment, is he has the title of king, and some people have the title of boss, but if you have to walk around saying, I'm the boss, you have to listen to me, you're not in charge. And, and David, as king over Israel, the rightful king, he, he hasn't been in charge. His son had stolen that from him, and for the first time we see David, we see David as the undisputed king, the king who sits on the throne with absolute authority, with unquestionable power. We see David returned to his position as king. The rest of chapter 19 
is the story of making it back to Jerusalem. We looked at some of this a few weeks ago. I believe it was the week that we were out for snow where, where David, um, we talked about David and his mercy where the people who had attacked him and as he came back into Jerusalem, these people you know, come and apologize to him. The, the stories of Shimei and the story of Mephibosheth, those guys, we talked about those, so we're gonna kind of skip over that. And we've watched this amazing journey of David. We've watched David suffering for the consequences of his sin and pride. We've seen David understand anew what it means to have mercy and to be, or have mercy upon someone and to have somebody have mercy upon you. We've seen the David who was on the run with little food and little water who cried out to God, why have you abandoned me? We've seen the David who sat behind, he watched his own battle fought by God. And we've seen David who grieved and accepted the life that he had. And what I can tell you after we've been through this whole Thirsty with God series, as we've looked at the story of David, I can tell you that God was working in David's life. It wasn't just a matter of how is God going to get David back on the throne. It's a matter of what is God doing in David's life? How is he growing David? How is David growing closer to God? And as he returns to Jerusalem, we see this change in his life. See, the title of king had a different meaning to David now than it did in the past. In the past, the title of king had this meaning of I can do what I want, I'm in charge, everybody looks at me. But we see that David realizes that there is a difference between being a king and being the king. As he rides back into Jerusalem, he does what David does best. He sits down and he, and he writes his heart out in a song form. And he pours out what he's feeling in that moment. And because of that, we can see the emotion and the change in David. And that's Psalm 24, if you want to turn there. Let's read what David wrote as he rides back in, King of Israel. We're going to read verses 1 and 2 first. It says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. As David comes back in to Jerusalem, he focuses on ownership. Who owns this? And, and David writes in this psalm that the, the earth is the Lord's. And he goes ahead and clarifies what he means when he says the earth. He says everything in it, the trees, the animals, the water, the mountains, all of those things belong to God. But he throws this in as well as the people, the people are in it. Those belong to God as well. And as David rides back into his kingdom, he realizes that my kingdom isn't mine. My throne isn't mine. The people that I rule over, those are not mine. And, and this city, these are not mine. These all belong to God. And he tells us this comes because God is the creator. He says, he founded it. He, he founded the earth. He created these things. And we can see the train of thought in David here is that he now values God's rule over the world and God's ability to rule over the world and God's ownership over the world because of God's creation. See, if, if we create something, it's generally designed. This world was created by design. There, there's not an accident anywhere in this world. Everything was created perfect according to God's will. And if things are created with a design, they're created with thought. And if they're created with forethought, they're created with understanding. And so a creator who creates with forethought and who creates with understanding, he has the right to rule. He has the right to rule the world. And as we look at our Bibles and we look at the story of David, David understands that. 
David now understands, looking at everything that happened to him and the journey that he's been on, David now understands, this is, this is why you don't take other men's wives. This is why you don't murder, because God has the right to rule, because he understands the world in a way that we never will. And so we as Christians, that's why we say that what's contained in this book, this, this is the best way. Look, I'm not gonna sit here and judge you because you broke a rule in this book. That's not what Christians do. We don't call people out and jump all over them and say, you're a sinner. And we don't celebrate that and we don't talk down to people. What we say is, this is the best way. Because these are the instructions of the creator who doesn't make mistakes, who created this world by design, who knows everything about this world. And so when we ask questions, is God's design for marriage between a man and a woman, is that the right way? We say yes, because he's the creator and he designed and he understands in a way that we never will. When, when people ask questions, did God make a mistake when he made someone a man or a woman? Was they supposed to be the other way around? We say, no, 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 there was no mistake because God is a creator who creates with design and with forethought and therefore he does not make mistakes and he has the right to rule and he has the right to order. When the Bible tells us to turn the other cheek, we ask God, is that really the best way to handle a bully? To let people attack us? To love people who hate us? Is that really the best way to go about the world? We have to go back to the fact that God created the world and he designed it with forethought and he has the right to rule because he understands it in a way that we never will. David's conclusion is this, is that only God is worthy to rule the world. God is the king of the world. Our second take-home truth is this, is that God's creation still belongs to him. We look out at the world and if you watch the news, you kind of wonder, does God still own all this? It's getting worse every day. I can't believe the things that we see and that we're dealing with and the hurt and the violence and the sin. I can't believe it. Is it, is it really still God's? Listen, it is still God's creation. And listen, that includes us. You and I belong to God. With David's realization that there is a king that is greater than he is, he talks about how he approaches this king, how he approaches God. This is verses three through six. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, approaching God? Or who shall stand by his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul up vainly, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God, from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. Listen to what David says here as we talk about if this king who rules the world, who has ownership of the world because he created and he designed it. How, how do we approach this God? And David, three things that stands out in this is, is David says, approach him with clean hands. I love David, but what a silly thing to say. You better wash your hands before you come to church. That's the doctrinal implication of this. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Listen to what David says. He says, approach him with clean hands. And, and most of us understand that the words of cleanliness and dirtiness in the Bible are, are related to righteousness and sin. Most of us understand that connection. So when David says clean hands, we may be tempted to look at David and say, David, are you saying we've got to approach God as perfect? David, are you saying we've got to approach God making sure that we've never messed up? And if, if you think that of the Bible, if you think that of yourself when you go to God and you pray in your private time, you go, I can't talk to God today because I sinned. <laughs> I, I did the big one again. That's not what David's saying. 
David's not saying you must be perfect to approach God or that you must not sin. Uh, That's why he uses the concept of clean hands. This isn't a picture of being sinless. This is a picture of repentance. Think about it. How do you get your hands clean? You take some time to wash them. And that takes a little bit of forethought to think, my hands are dirty. I want to remove the dirt and the grime from my hands. This weekend we were doing a little landscaping and I I didn't realize this, but we bought some mulch and and we wanted red because, I don't know, I was just told we wanted red. So we wanted red and you you play in this mulch all day and I didn't realize that red mulch doesn't grow on red trees. It's, It's dyed. It has this dye all over it. And so I'm looking at my hands and we went and got pizza and you guys know how I love pizza, right? And so I'm like, I'm going to chow down, but I'm going to get this stuff off my hand. And I went in the bathroom and I washed my hands and the whole sink just turned red from that dye. There's this concept that David is getting to is that we have stuff on our hands, but we make a conscious effort to remove it. We make a conscious effort to clean it, not because we can make ourselves righteous, but because we repent and we realize we don't want this. We want this removed from us. We reject the dirt that we found. We would rather be clean. And so David approaches God with repentance. Was he sinless before God? No but he approaches God with repentance. Secondly, he says to approach God with a pure heart. Clean hands are useless if your heart is not pure. I'm not quite to this point with Oakley yet, but I've had so many parents tell me the story that have like a two or three-year-old and the kid goes outside and of course we all like to dress our babies up like baby dolls and goes outside and what do they find? the mud puddle, right? The dirtiest place in the yard. And they go out there and they get dirt and mom comes and picks them up and they got mud all over their hands and they've got it in their hair. And mom picks them up and takes off all their clothes, washes them up, gives them a bath, puts new clothes on them and says, okay, we got you cleaned up. Where does that child go immediately if you let them back outside? Back to the same mud puddle. And what David's saying is coming to God with a heart of repentance or with a clean hands means nothing if you don't have the heart of repentance. That child gets dirty again and again and again because they don't care if they're clean. Deep in here, ask a kid, do you want to be clean? You know what they're going to say? I don't care. I remember being like a 12-year-old boy. People had to like force me, chase me with a broom to make me take a bath. Like people don't care. So David says, I come with a pure heart, a heart of repentance. It matches, it matches my hands. And it tells us about our faith. Our faith is not a faith of outward actions. David had played that before. David had played the king who loved God, the king who talked about God, the king who worshiped in the temple while he had secret sin in his heart and in his life. David says, I come with a pure heart understanding my sin and the prideful destruction that comes with it. And third, he talks about seeking God. That's the whole story. We, we deemed the series thirsty for God because what, what I saw in David as I read through this is, is David was chasing God. David wasn't content to just say, well, I'm not gonna die and go to hell, so I, everything's gonna be okay. David wanted God. David wanted what God had. David wanted a connection with God. And the reason we see as we went through this story is David understood his need for grace. See, even with clean hands and a pure heart, even with a heart of repentance, David knew that he still needed a savior. And that brings us to what we approach. Is as we approach God, we approach him with grace and we look for his righteousness. The Bible says that he gives us righteousness. Cleaning your hands is not giving you righteousness. Your heart is not gonna be pure enough to be righteous. That's, that's not what the Bible is saying. It's saying, come into God in this way, and he gives us through his grace, not because we deserve it, he gives us righteousness, and that word translated simply means cleared of blame. 
So we have here with David this, this picture of God cleansing and uh, clearing him of blame. And we have David saying, I come to God with a heart of repentance. We have this picture of repentance and grace. And from this new understanding of God, David sees God in a new way. And he understands God's authority and power in new ways. If, if you continue reading through Psalm 24, verses seven through 10, we'll finish it up. Listen to what he says here. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. I love this, that as David claims the title of king, as he sits back on his throne, this place of absolute authority, as he rides back into Jerusalem, he writes a psalm about who the king is. I don't believe that's a coincidence. I don't believe it's an accident that David, as he's sitting here, that David, as he's thinking about being king again, as he's taking his place again, I don't believe it's an accident that he takes time to focus on God as the king, the king. I believe what David says here is, God, I'm giving you my title. God, this title of king, I, I give it away. I'm but an earthly king, but God, you are king over the earth. Our next take-home truth is this, is that there are kings and there is the king. There are kings and there is the king, and there's a difference. As David refers to God as the king, He's not just talking about somebody. He's not just writing things because they sound good. We see in David's heart how he looks at the king. See, a king is one with a high status, one who sits on a throne, one who has absolute authority. And David, as a king, in this time, he would have understood that for a king, that there are these symbols of highness, these, and that this king would be unattainable and unreachable. I went back and I looked at the etiquette. This, is, this will be very important. If you ever meet royalty, you'll need to know these, these five simple steps to meeting royalty. Otherwise, you'll mess up and get thrown out of the palace. It'll be really embarrassing. But, but these steps of what it takes to actually meet a king or a queen or a princess or a prince. The first one is when a king enters the room, you stand. And you don't stand with your hands in your pocket. Your hands must be in front of you or in back of you. Standing straight up. No arms crossed that signals contempt. No hands in pockets that tells that you really don't care who entered the room. This ultra sign of respect when a king enters the room. This is what would have happened when David entered the room. So when he calls God a king, he understands this picture of the respect that comes from that. When a king enters the room, you bow. This the symbol of I'm going to get physically lower than you are. As, as a symbol of my loneliness and your highness. If you meet a king, you only address them by a title. You never talk, call them by their first name. George, how are you? Good to see you. You always call a king your highness, once again, signaling the fact that you know that they are greater than you. You never touch a king or a queen ever. You're not on a level where you can have any physical contact. No handshakes, no hugs, no fist bumps with king or queen. When you sit down, if you should be lucky enough to dine with royalty, don't eat first. You watch the king or queen, and only after they've had their first bite may you begin to eat. And never will you have personal conversation 
with a king or queen. Never do you think that I can walk up to a king and say, hey, you really messed up that speech, didn't you? You stumbled your words. Never do I walk up to a king and go, how about those razorbacks? Never do you get that familiar with a king. And every last one of those things, what it says to the king is you say, I am not worthy of you. You are high, I am low. And every last one of those actions is about telling that king that I understand my place below you. When David talks of God as a king, this is what he's saying to him. He says, I recognize your absolute authority. I recognize that you are high and that I am low. And so David addresses him with this sense of respect and the sense of love and the sense of understanding of how low he is in comparison. But yet, strangely, strangely, David is personal with this king. What, what did I just say about you don't have personal conversations with the king and you don't talk to the king by their first name? You call them by a title, your highness, something of that effect? And yet, I want you to look at how David talks to and about God. If you look in those last three verses there, you'll see the word Lord. In most of your Bibles, it'll have that capitalized. It'll be capital letters all across. And, and what we need to understand about the way the Bible was written is when David wrote the word Lord, he didn't write Lord. He wrote God's personal name. He wrote Yahweh. And so as he's speaking here, he's speaking to God. This was only changed several hundred years later when the people who were copying the Bible were so uncomfortable with speaking God's name, they realized we've got to put a placeholder in there to make sure that we're not accidentally writing God's personal name in a way that's disrespectful or that we're messing it up. And so our Bibles today translate that instead of God's personal name, Lord. But especially in the, inner, in the Old Testament, anytime you see that word Lord, it means Yahweh and you can read it as Yahweh. So here is David addressing a king personally by his personal name. Let's read this again. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh, he is the king of glory. As David writes this, he ascribes to God this place of high respect, this place of highness, and he focuses on his own lowliness, but he has the ability to address God personally. David was on a first name basis with God. And the reason for that is, is because he knew him. And I've got news for you today. The king that we worship, he desires to know us personally. He does sit on a place of authority. Make no mistake, the Bible talks about God sitting on a throne in heaven, a place of absolute authority, a place that says that he is high and we are low, but we have the ability to address him personally, to come to know him like David did. Our last take-home truth is this, is that God has absolute authority, but he lets you choose who sits on the throne of your life. So let's ask this question. Who has absolute authority in your life? Who, who sits on the throne in my life? Some of us are sitting here today and we've come to church this morning, but some of us have taken that throne. In our own lives, we sit in a place of absolute authority. I make the rules. I live life the way that I want to live it. I decide what is right or wrong. I decide the future of my life. I decide where I go and when I go there. 
I have absolute authority over my life. And I just want to be clear, that is your choice. But if I don't stand up here and tell you that that will come to an end, I'm not doing my job. There will be a day when there's not going to be a question of who is an absolute authority. When we will stand in front of the throne of God and there will be no question who is in charge. And if we get to that point, that will be the day that it is too late to try to come to God with clean hands and a pure heart. And the consequences of that moment, when we say to God all of our lives, I choose to sit on my own throne, I am the absolute authority in my life, the consequences of that are eternal. But maybe even worse than that is is some of us here, as Christians, we need to ask ourselves, some of us, we try to share the throne with God. We call ourselves followers of God. We made a commitment in our life, said, I will follow you anywhere. God, you control my life. But there are some things in our lives that we won't give him. Remember, a throne is a place of absolute authority. Absolute means everything. That means that whoever sits on that throne has authority over our relationships. It has authority over our habits and our entertainment. That whoever sits on that throne has authority over how and when and where we spend our money and authority over what sin in our life. And when we say to God, God, I choose when you have absolute authority. God, I choose when you are in charge of my life. I choose the places that I let you be in charge of. I choose to follow these rules and not these. God, you can have these but not that one. What we say to God is, you are not the king I am. Live if you want to start making your way up here. Today is our opportunity to come to God. And we have the opportunity to come to God like David. Clean hands, pure heart, seeking him, seeking his grace, understanding that we need his salvation. But it's going to take us being willing to say, God, you have absolute authority in my life. God, you have absolute control over my life. And if you've never made that decision, God loves you enough that it doesn't matter how many times you've told him he can't have control over your life, that he forgives you for it instantly. And for those of us that are followers of Christ and we struggle with God giving God absolute authority.